sometimes as believers we get the feeling that we're the only ones to ever go through hard times you know when the bad times hit and you're going through grief through mourning through uh, financial difficulties through all types of uh, trials and even temptations it's real easy to have a difficulty seeing beyond the forest right in front of you it's difficult sometimes to see a bigger picture to understand God's perspective or even to understand that uh, you're not the first one to go through hard times we've been going through the book of first Peter and uh, something we haven't done to this point is really look at what the recipients of that letter that Peter wrote so many centuries ago were going through and uh, I wanted to take just a minute so we could understand because the better we understand what the original recipients of the letter of first Peter were going through the better we can apply that to our own situation and see how God's promises to them remain true to us and those original recipients of this book or this letter that we call first Peter well they were going through some pretty bad sufferings um, the earliest Christians, of course, you know, way back in Acts chapter 2, those earliest Christians, they were all Jews. And they simply considered themselves Jews that believed in the Messiah that God had promised his people. And that's certainly what we believe as well, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. In fact, the Messiah of the whole world. But to them, it was just a, a, the, the reception of Jesus and the reception of the Holy Spirit into their lives was simply... Uh, an outgrowth of the faith that they already had and so they continued to worship as Jews they continued to go to the temple if they lived in other uh, cities or areas they would go to the synagogue uh, but they had the distinction of placing their faith in Christ they considered themselves to be the faithful remnant and while those who those Jews that did not place their faith in the Jewish Messiah well they were uh, a faithless or unbelieving uh, portion of the people that God had uh, chosen to be his people, the Jews. Well, over time, the distinctions that grew between the Jewish faith and those that uh, believed in Jesus became more clear. And followers of Jesus uh, decide, had, had to come to a very important decision, and it was this. What do we do with these Gentiles who want to follow Jesus? In Acts chapter 10, for example, you have the man Cornelius and his entire household. They believe in the Lord Jesus and they're saved. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. Uh, but the question remains, what's the church, which is made up of all Jews, what's the church going to do with these new believers? Should we accept them? Or if they want to be a part of the church, should we make them become Jews? Should we make the males become circumcised? Should we make uh, all of them follow the Jewish rituals and the Levitical laws and all of the things that we've always given ourselves over to do? Is this a requirement to follow Jesus? You've got to become a Jew to follow Jesus. That was the question. And so uh, the, the issue was whether the Spirit of God was doing something new. Was He leading these early Jesus followers who were all Jews to include non-Jews in their fellowship. Well, in Acts chapter 15, 
the uh, question, that specific question had to be dealt with and answered. And in Acts chapter 15, you had the person who was uh, the loudest uh, uh, supporter of receiving non-Jews as they are into the church, and that would be Paul, the apostle. He made an argument or a, uh, uh, some type of uh, speech to the church at the council at Jerusalem, but you had others there who were not quite too sure. They were not too sure about it. You had James, who is the uh, leader of the church at Jerusalem. He was the leader of the elders there. Uh, and he may have most likely been on the other side of the issue, thinking that, no, the, the church really needs to be about uh, those that are Jews. And so we, we may need to require the Gentiles to become Jews. Then he had Peter, the leader of the apostles. He was there as well, and all the apostles that were there were, had to uh, make a decision as well. And he probably would have taken some type of mediating position. But as they discussed this and they prayed about this and they heard everything that God was doing in the household of Cornelius and the household of others who had received Christ and yet were not Jews, the issue became settled. And the Jerusalem council, and speaking at that council was Peter, speaking at that council was James. They all decided the same thing because they were all led by the Spirit of God. And the decision that was made was this, that Gentiles who accepted Jesus would be accepted into the church. We're not going to make them become Jews in order to be a part of the church. Well, and this was the right decision. It was a very good decision, and it really propelled Paul to continue to go on missionary journeys throughout uh, Asia Minor. Asia Minor is what we call modern-day Turkey, and he went into modern-day Turkey. And in fact, uh, he went actually into Europe. He crossed over from Turkey into uh, Greece, and he uh, there was uh, leading people to Christ as well as everywhere else that he went. And so Paul was uh, going to all these different places, and inevitably, when Paul would preach that Jesus, the Messiah, came to save you. He would encounter some opposition. And I'll give you a couple of examples of the opposition. Because this opposition would eventually lead to some local and sporadic suffering of Christians, persecution of Christians. But for example, there was one master who owned a slave, and the, the slave that he owned made him money through her, her sorcery. Well, when she got saved and she gave up her sorcery, she was radically changed. We all look at that and we, think, we, we see that and we say, well, thank God, you know, the, this young lady was radically changed. That wasn't the reaction of the master. The master who owned that slave saw that he lost a source of income. And he was quite upset about it. Another example is in Acts chapter 19. Verse 23, Paul makes his way to Ephesus. And in verse 23, we read, About that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. This is what Christians were known as. They followed the way. There was no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis was a goddess 
that uh, people in that area worshipped. And this was big business for him, big business for a lot of people. And so he would make shrines for people to purchase, and they would take it home, and they'd be able to worship Artemis, this false god at home, goddess at home. And then you could come to the great temple and worship Artemis there. And so this was a, a, a big money-making deal. Well, he, he made silver shrines of Artemis. He was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, that's another way of saying it. he was making a lot of money for everybody. Verse 25. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades. So he called a business meeting, and he said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia... This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that, whom, that, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. This guy's making the case. Paul is bad for business. Following Jesus is bad for business. We're going to lose our shirts on this. And not only that, if it gets bad enough, not only will people stop worshiping Artemis in their homes, which will hurt our business, but they'll stop coming to the temple. And so his argument is not only one of economics, but also religion. He was a true believer in Artemis. And so... From this, and this is the kind of uh, situation that Paul would face from time to time, Christians began to be persecuted. Now, like I said, it was, it was local, it was sporadic, it was occasional, it was intermittent. At this point in history, it was not yet declared that Christianity was something that no one could follow. The emperor had not yet declared that that would come, but not at this point. At this point, the persecution was local and sporadic, but it was still difficult. Christians were being persecuted by Jews for religious reasons. Christians were being persecuted by Romans for economic and religious reasons. And so this type of persecution continued and it grew. And Peter was writing to some people who lived in the capital city in Rome christians there who were under persecution and they needed some encouragement they needed some reminders of who god was and why this persecution has come upon them they couldn't simply turn on their radio back then or get on the website or pick their favorite bible app they had none of that what they had were the scriptures the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament that they could read when they came together. Not everyone had a copy of them in their own home, even. But when they came together for encouragement and worship, they could read the Scriptures together. And Peter decided that he, like Paul had done so many other times, would write a letter to these particular believers who were suffering persecution. And so in this letter... Peter writes that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of God's temple. Who's the temple of God? They are. You are the temple of God. The temple of God is not some building 
a thousand miles away in Jerusalem. You're the temple of God. God dwells in you. And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of that. Last week we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. I want to look at these two verses again very briefly. Because this is what Peter says. He says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious corner stone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Question before we move on to the verse that we'll examine today. Why does, Jesus, why, why does Peter call Jesus the cornerstone? I mean, that's sort of an odd thing to say, wouldn't you think? Why would he call Jesus the cornerstone? You know, in fact, in, uh, in, there's a number of places in the New Testament where Jesus is called the cornerstone. One of those is in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Now, if you read the NIV, the New International Version, something interesting happened in the NIV. Originally, when the NIV was written, in Matthew 21, 42, they translated uh, that as Jesus being the cornerstone. It's Jesus' own words. He's talking about himself being the cornerstone. But then the NIV had a revision in 1984. And in that revision, they changed it to capstone, not cornerstone. And then in 2011, there was another revision to the NIV, and it got changed back to cornerstone. And so the literal translation of what's there in Matthew's gospel are these words, the head of the corner. That's literally what it means. And so there's debates as to how that should be understood. What does the head of the corner mean when you're talking about a building? And so in the NIV translators, they, they all uh, had discussions about this, and they waffled back and forth on the issue. Uh, well, what is a capstone? And what is a cornerstone? Well, a capstone is the last stone put up on a building. You're talking about square or triangular, some type of building like that. It's going to be the very last one up in the corner. It's going to be at the pinnacle of the building. And it will be a significant stone, and it will help hold the walls in, uh, together and in place. Unfortunately, throughout the centuries, the idea of a spiritual capstone has been hijacked by occultists, by Wiccans and witchcraft and by Satanists. And uh, th that very idea, you have the pyramid and the eye over the pyramid. We've all seen that, that symbol. Uh, that's that's in, an indication of the capstone. It is the very pinnacle of the building. And, and so, uh, unfortunately, that idea has sort of been hijacked in popular culture uh, by them. But then you have the idea of the cornerstone, and we're probably more familiar with that. The cornerstone is the very first rock that is put into place if you're building an old building as back then. It's the very first stone that's laid when a building is built. And it is what the rest of the stones of that building depend on. Now, there's a picture I, wanna, I want you to see, and it's, uh, and it's actually, I don't know if you'll be able to see the whole thing, but down at the very bottom, uh, there is a, a rather significant cornerstone. This cornerstone at the very bottom of this building, this is... If you go to Jerusalem today, you'll see this. 
and it is a 50-ton uh, rock that is put into place. It is significant. It is something that's not going to be very easily moved. And so you get the idea when Jesus is talking about himself being the cornerstone or Peter's talking about Jesus being the cornerstone, this is exactly what he's talking about. And so that passage in Matthew I referenced, it really should probably be translated cornerstone. This passage, Jesus is specifically called a precious corner stone. He is the cornerstone. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the basis for our very lives. He is the basis for everything in your life. It also means that Jesus is the basis, the foundation for the people of God in all of our totality. He is the head of the corner. He is the cornerstone of the entire church, the entire kingdom of God. It all rests upon Jesus. He is the very first stone laid in the temple that God is building. And that temple, of course, is you and me. And so the person, Peter says, that you place your faith in, the person when you got saved, when you decided to follow Jesus, that person that you placed your faith in is also a source of offense to unbelievers. The same Jesus that you trust and love is the same Jesus that others do not. He's a source of offense to them. Look at verse 7. Peter says, This precious value then is for you who believe. This Jesus. He is precious to you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Verse 8 continues in the first part of it, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter is saying that when you trust Christ, you are giving honor to Him. And also that you receive honor because of your belief. You know, there's only two types of people in this world. Lost people and saved people. There's no in-between. There's no partially saved. There's no partially lost. The lost, according to what Peter's writing, will one day receive dishonor and shame, but Christians will receive honor. Why? Because of the same person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the source of honor for us because we believe Him. He's the source of shame. He's a rock of stumbling and offense to those who do not believe. And the Bible shows us here that, that this was actually predicted because Peter is quoting the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And so this is something that the Old Testament prophets predicted that people would reject God's Messiah. And those who reject Christ have been proved wrong by God's exaltation of him to the greatest prominence, to the cornerstone. There are people in Jesus' day who looked Jesus square in the eye and rejected him. They turned away. You think of the rich young ruler. Jesus gave the rich young ruler every opportunity to receive him and be saved. And Scripture says that that young man turned away. 
and was sad because he was very wealthy and unwilling to give up his wealth in order to follow Jesus. And so Jesus is the very cornerstone that some reject. He is the cornerstone that some receive. But in your life, what does it mean for Jesus to be the cornerstone? What does that mean in a practical sense? Well, it's like the, it's like the artist who had a, a palette he was painting from. And this particular artist, as the story goes, would have a, a, a red ruby attached to his palette and a green emerald attached to his palette. And he would have a sapphire attached to his palette, a blue sapphire. And someone finally asked him, why do you have these pure rocks glued permanently to the palette from which you paint? And he replied, to help me keep my colors true. In the course of time, without some constant reference, my eye might lose its perception of color tones, and the colors I choose may not be right. They may not be what they once were. When Jesus is the cornerstone of your life in a practical way, He is the one that you look to constantly, and you can make adjustments to your life according to the purity, according to the holiness of the standard that He has set. Some people, however, look at Jesus and they're hostile toward Him, they're unbelieving toward him they reject him but this rejection not only was the rejection itself predicted and promised by God and planned for by God but also the punishment as well verse 8 continues it says for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed to this they were also appointed. It's sort of a difficult verse for us to understand that they were appointed by God to this punishment for rejecting Christ. But what we have to remember is when you receive opposition to your faith by those who look at Jesus and reject Him, this is part of the plan of God. God knows about this. God is not surprised about this. And uh, we need to look at this verse very closely and understand what it says, what it does not say. This verse says that lost people stumble because they do not obey God's word and that they were destined or they were established or they were appointed to do this. This doesn't mean that their choices were predetermined. It doesn't mean that God in eternity past created someone in order to simply send that person to hell. God does not want, wish or want hell for anyone. The Bible is very clear about that. God wants all men to be saved. But what it does say is that those that, who are freely able to choose to follow God, when those people decide not to, well, it means that there is an appointed judgment for them. 
There is no way, in other words, for unbelievers to escape the consequences that God has determined for them unless they repent, unless they place their faith in Christ. There's no other way for them to escape that appointment. It is appointed for man once to die and after that, the judgment. There's no way to turn, uh, to, to turn that around and to make it mean something else. There's no way for unbelievers to escape the judgment other than to believe and to repent. This verse, in fact, leaves open the possibility of repentance and saving faith for the unbelievers that it talks about. You see, all three of the verbs in, in this verse are present tense ver verbs. And this verse could actually be read this way. But for those who are presently not believing, who are presently stumbling because they are presently disobeying the word, unto this they were also appointed. In other words, they are presently not believing. It holds out hope that in the days to come, in the days in the future, they might repent. It doesn't mean that they will always be unbelieving they may in fact receive the lord's mercy in fact verse 12 sort of explains that it says keep your behavior excellent among the gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify god in the day of visitation so peter is saying just a few verses later these same people that are appointed to judgment they may see your good works and they may repent so God's mercy is not finished with them. God's work in their lives is not done. They still have time, but the clock is ticking. Now some, uh, some of us would have a hard time, I think, with this idea of God's judgment upon unbelievers. Scripture never explains to us every question that we might wonder about why and how and all of this might, how it might take place. But it only indicates that even the condemnation of guilty unbelievers will result in greater glory to God because God will deal justly with those who do not believe and He will have mercy with those who do receive Him. And God, of course, is never to be blamed for the sinful actions of men. In fact, not one person has ever sinned against God that did not do so willingly. Man always receives the just blame for his own actions. And so if we look at verses like this and we come to a, a false conclusion, a wrong conclusion, that God is somehow to blame for people going to hell, or if we come to a wrong conclusion that, that somehow um, God has determined in eternity past that he's going to create some people in order just simply to go to hell, we come to those unedifying and wrong conclusions, then we've misunderstood completely what God is trying to tell us in this passage. The Apostle Paul essentially dealt with the same struggle in Romans chapter 9, verses 19 and 20. He said, If God has destined some to stumble, then why, do, why does God still find fault? Who resists his will? He says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? And Paul, of all people, understood that God wants all men to come to faith in Him. Again, what Peter is saying in these verses that we're studying today is that we should be comforted when we encounter hostility to our faith. 
when you go through difficulties because you're a Christian and you have added burdens to your life because of your faith in Christ, rest assured that God not, o- God not only predicted that this would happen, but He made plans for it as well. And in His eternal, eternally wise plan, God has provided resource for you, and it is Himself. So don't be afraid when you encounter hostility. Don't be afraid when you encounter unbelief because of your faith, because your, your Father, God your Father, holds it all under control. And he'll bring it to an end when he deems best. I know you've probably been there at, the, in a, at a certain point in your life, and maybe you're going through it right now, where you think, you know, I just, my life is going so bad, I, I just wish things would change. I don't know I don't, if I'm ever going to get out of this pit. I don't know if I'm ever going to be happy again. I don't know if, if things are ever going to change for me again. Listen, God's in control. And you may be going through a very difficult time, but it won't be forever. Be patient. God will rescue you at His appointed time. In the meantime, serve Him, trust in Him, ask Him for relief, and do not doubt what God is doing. You know, we who trust Christ, we're actually the people of God. Look at verse 9, very famous verse. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You and I are called names that were once given to Israel. You and I are a chosen race. Listen to what God said to Israel in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 20. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches because I've given water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people the people whom I form for myself will declare my praise God says all the animals of the field will see what I've done for my people when I led them out of Egypt how I provided for them in a miraculous way gave them water where there was no water gave them food where there was no food and those animals they will declare my praise because of what I've done for my chosen people. God says to you, you are my chosen people. You are a chosen race. Verse 9 calls us a royal priesthood and a holy nation. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God promises this very same status to all in Israel who keep his covenant. And this is an incredible verse, Exodus 19, 6. It says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's a fantastic verse. Think about the imagery there. When you think about having a king, and we don't think about kings so much because we have a different system of government, but even in our system of government, we have a separation of church and state. And in that separation of church and state, uh, we don't look to the president to be our spiritual leader. He is, in a sense. But we don't look to him to be the one who brings us the Word of God every Sunday. In ancient kingdoms, most of the time, not always, most of the time, you would have a king who would rule over the people, and then you'd have another group of people that would be the priests. 
they would be the ones to talk to God or they'd be the ones if they worshiped a false god to talk to the false gods um, but there was a difference there between the king and the priests between the secular and the religious but God says to Israel in Exodus chapter 19 I brought you out of Egypt because I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests the entire kingdom will be priests everyone in that kingdom will have access to me everyone and this is what God says to us we are a royal priesthood we're a kingdom of priests we are a holy nation the spiritual nation that God has created in his body the body of Christ that we're a part of we have no ethnic identity collectively God doesn't say okay you're white therefore you're mine he doesn't say you're black or you're Asian therefore you're mine he doesn't say that there's no ethnic identity to the people of God that he has created there's no geographical boundaries God doesn't say, well, because you live in Texas or you live in the United States, then you're mine. No. The people of God are everywhere. Everywhere. There's no geographical boundaries to being the people of God. And the common allegiance that we have is not to a nation. The common allegiance that we have is not to a president. The common allegiance we have is not even ultimately to a flag it is not to an anthem the common allegiance the people of God has is to our king Jesus Christ he has our ultimate allegiance every other allegiance that we might have every other allegiance that we might state is secondary to our allegiance to our heavenly king Jesus Christ and we are a people for God's own possession. Sometimes the question is asked, can a, can a demon possess a Christian? You have to understand what, a, what the word possession means. Possession means own, ownership. Can a demon own a true believer of Jesus? No. There's been a spiritual transaction that takes place, and God is the owner of that person. We are a people that God owns. He possesses us. So why did God save us? Why did God save us? So we could declare His greatness. Verse 9 says, So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Verse 10, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy in the past, but now you have currently, presently, received mercy. You know, God's done something really amazing in your life. God has saved you. And you, some of us may have been saved for so long that we've forgotten how amazing that is. But God has saved you. And if God had not saved you, however many weeks or years or decades ago 
I wonder how different your life would be. I wonder how many more heartaches you would have experienced, how much more trouble you would have gotten into. I wonder if you'd even be alive today if God had not saved you. But God did save you. God saved you from being not a people, but now he's made you his people. God has saved you from not having his mercy, but now he's given you his mercy. And so we can be grateful for that. People look at Jesus and they see different things. It's like the story that I heard about, about uh, from the, in the days of the Old West when people were heading out on the Oregon Trail. They'd get to the eastern slope of the Rocky Mountains and they'd find a little stream there. And it was a little bit too wide to cross in one step. And so there was a lump right there in the middle of that stream and they would step on that rock, that bump coming up out of the stream, and make it across, the, uh, make it across that little stream. They'd sort of two-step it over there. Well, one day, as the years passed, other pioneers settled in that area. The, they built their cabins, they strung fences, they plowed the ground. One man built a cabin near that stream, and he had a problem with his door. His door kept wanting to shut. He didn't put it on very well. And so he got that old lump, and he uh, got it up out of that stream, and he used it as a doorstop. And so that ugly lump that a lot of people just stepped on for him, it became a heavy lump heavy rock that could keep his door shut well many more years passed and railroads were built across the nation and people pushed west and modern cities sprung up and a nephew of that old pioneer who had actually studied geology at a large university came home came by and visited him during vacation one day and lo and behold he looked at the front porch of his uncle's cabin and he knew that that rock that some people just saw as an ugly stepping stone and that his uncle just saw as something to, that was heavy, it was worth more than that. Because he knew that it was gold. Same rock. Some people saw it as ugly. Some people saw it as heavy. But the nephew saw it for what it really was. It was a lump of gold, and that's the way it is with Jesus. The same Jesus that others see as a stumbling stone, as a rock of offense, is actually a very precious cornerstone to our faith. The foundation of Jesus is the most important part of our lives, and He is the chief cornerstone that God has established for us.